Hey, and thanks for joining us for another episode of the Music History Project. Today, we're going to be airing part one of a two-part series on Henry Steinway of Steinway Pianos. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Dale. And Dan Del Fiorentino. And Mike Mullins. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a program that is over 3,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of the other interviews that aren't featured, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. All right. Thanks for joining us again. Uh, we're going to be talking Steinway Pianos today, specifically a oral history interview that Dan has captured with Henry Steinway. I'm so excited about this because uh, Henry was a, a true legend and a dear friend to many people in the music industry. And here in the NAM building, he was the first president of the Museum of Making Music Board here in Carlsbad, California. And so many of us got to know him over a long period of time. So it's really neat to have an opportunity to share with you some of his insights, uh, history of his company, his uh, uh, family members who contributed to the growth and development of the piano, and his own role in the company, as well as some of his insight on the industry and how it changed over for his long career. So uh, I'm really excited about sharing this interview. And I believe this is the first interview that I conducted back in November of 2001. Is that right, right, Mike? Yep, that looks to be right. Um, so it's an oldie, but a goodie. <laughs> <laughs> Our favorite word. And uh, this interview is one of many full-length interviews that are featured on our website, uh, Henry did contributed quite a significant amount of his time to help promote the oral history program by providing content and everything. So if you want to jump online and check out this interview in its entirety or any of his other full-length interviews or web clips, you can do so on our website. Which, Dan, what's our, we'd like to hear you today. So you can get all of these great I feel like I'm the commercial for Tommy Boy all of a sudden. <laughs> you got all these great brake pads and Callahan Auto. <laughs> That's www.nam.org. Slash library. Almost, Dan. You're almost I, I, I wanted them to search for it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's jump right in. The first uh, section of the interview we're going to be hearing today is Henry Steinway talking kind of a just general specifics about uh, the Steinway company, the start, its general history, everything like that, as well as some of the technical aspects that his family incorporated into improving uh, the existing piano and how that made them unique. A family that had a business in a small town called Zazen in the Harz Mountains of Germany. And in 1850, they decided to uh, move out, close up, and come to the United States. They'd making pianos in Germany, and it was then becoming difficult to do business, and it was after the 48 Revolution. And it was a father and mother and five sons and three daughters who were involved. And they came to New York in 1850. Um, and as soon as they landed, they got jobs with all different piano makers so they could 
learn the business, learn the state of the art here and so forth. And finally on March 5th, 1853, they formed a partnership of the Papa and the two older sons, Steinway and Sons, equal partnership, not Papa owning most, but the three of them together. And then the other sons were admitted as time went on. And they were able through their uh, study and through their experience to make a better piano. They made certain improvements with the overstrung scale and a lot of technical stuff that's not worth going into, but they wound up with a piano that actually did sound better. And uh, this piano was uh, accepted by musical circles in New York, and that's how Steinway started its promotion of artists, figuring, well, that's fine, they can advise us on the piano, we'll use them as publicity. And then in uh, 1867, they showed in Paris the great exhibition there. And really, the piano was better than all the old European ones. And that was Steinway's big success. They won the gold medal there, and uh, the reputation grew. And as an outgrowth of that, Steinway decided it had to do something about the world market, just not New York alone. And so they... Um, first started in London with a branch store. London was then the center of the world in 1875, that was the center. And then ultimately in Hamburg, Germany in 1880, a manufacturing facility, uh, which somewhat luckily has survived all the wars and still is a part of Steinway and Sons. And they picked Hamburg because it was a seaport and they could ship from there to all over the world, including the London subsidiary. So that's sort of a brief way of how it grew. Then on the corporate side, <clears throat> it turned into a uh, corporation. And I uh, have to mention that when they went to pick their symbol, they picked LVB. Ludwig von Beethoven is the stock symbol when you look it up. So that's a brief history. Uh, there's a lot more of the various things, but that gives you the general story. Tell me a little bit um, about the technicalities that your um, family members had incorporated into the piano, uh, maybe even as early as, as at, the, at the beginning, to, to really distinguish that Steinway name. Well, that, uh, I can certainly do that. The very first thing was to take two ideas which had been floating around, the idea of an overstrung scale, meaning the bass strings cross over the treble strings. That had been floating around and the idea of using a cast iron plate, which had also been around. Steinway adopted these two and added a couple of wrinkles, one of which was a, a downward projecting flange on the bottom of the plate that m made it uh, touch the rest plank in a better way and could get more tension on the piano. And the way the strings were displayed was not straight, but in a fan shape. So by about 1890 or so, the piano, as it's known today, is pretty well set in its design. And uh, we think Steinway, building on the accomplishments of others, like any invention, uh, uh, set the tone and was uh, imitated widely. And if you look into any piano today, they look the same. They have the overstrung scale, they have the plate with the uh, certain wrinkles on it that uh, Theodore had invented and so forth. So back in our history, it was one of those family things. One of the strengths of it was that there was so much family, not just father and son, but uh, ultimately this uh, Theodore Steinway and his younger brother William, who was 15 when he arrived here speaking English and became 
He was the business administrative promotional head, was way ahead of his time. And they made a powerful combination. Then the nephews came up in the business and there were uh, the three, four, five nephews that stuck with it and uh, right into my time. And so there was, there was a, always some family talent around that seemed to take to the business. So that's it. Do you recall if, um, was it Theodore in charge of Steinway during uh, the beginning period of the museum around the 1880s, 1890s? Is that about right? Uh, at that time, uh, William Steinway, the last surviving son, was in charge. Uh, and he was very active in the Piano Makers Association, which he'd been with for many, many years. The Piano Association goes back to, I forget what, but uh, I think the NAM uh, was created in 1901, was it? Uh, yeah. Uh, grew out of that and they had conventions and all that sort of stuff. So it was William until 1896. And then when he died, his nephew, Charles, his brother Charles, who died Young's son, took over. And then he died in 1919, and his brother, Frederick T. Steinway, was uh, president. And under his leadership in the 20s, uh, this building that we are sitting in, Steinway Hall, was built as a special retail showroom. And uh, then in 1927, he died, and my father, Theodore E. Steinway, took over, and then when he got sick in 1955, uh, I became president, and that was the first really time when it had gone from a father to a son. And uh, I had started the business with uh, several cousins uh, who didn't, weren't, weren't named Steinway, they were, uh, the, the Zieglers were interested in the Casabias, and uh, a fellow named Frederick Vitor who, uh, was my particular boss, so that's how it went. So there, right off the bat, we already are starting with this great concept that before Steinway, before the Steinway family uh, were involved with creating pianos, many of the main elements that we now know of as a modern piano did not exist. So their role in developing some of the uh, fanning of the strings, for example, and some of the other techniques that they came up with and the many patents that they filed over the years really helped uh, create what we now refer to as the modern piano, which is really neat. So again, a great reason why we documented this story with uh, Henry Steinway and why it's so uh, exciting to hear in his own words that, uh, that great story. So next up, we're going to hear Henry talking about his relation to the original Steinway, uh, his father, um, as well as uh, manufacturing during uh, the war years, and then going on to talking about uh, his brother opening up the Steinway store in Berlin. So your relationship to the, father, the founding father of Steinway is? Uh, I am a great grandson of the original fellow. The reason for that is my grandfather, William Steinway, had two marriages separated by 20 years. And I am descended from the second uh, wife. So uh, when William Steinway died in 1896, my father was only 13 years old. So I never knew him. Or, and even he never knew him. He always told me he was scared to death of his own father because he was this irascible old man. But uh, uh, that's the way it goes. And so they were in the business. Tell me about um, your father. Uh, Theodore Steinway was a very interesting fellow, I think, because he 
he had been trained to go into the technical end of the business with his uh, cousin, Henry Ziegler, who was a descendant of Doretta Steinway. And that's why I'm named Henry Ziegler Steinway after, after his one. And he liked that. And he wasn't, uh, his older brother William was uh, the outgoing one and should have been the designated successor. But through various circumstances, uh, my father was projected into running Steinway at the peak time, 1927, was a great turning point for the industry, which nobody knew. Network radio came in in 1927. The player piano was killed absolutely dead. I mean, it just fell down in 1927 because people, no more rolling back the rug and dancing. It was all, uh, uh, let's listen to the radio and Amos and Andy and all that sort of stuff. And um, then, of course, 1929 struck with all the difficulties that came on. The factory was closed for a couple of years, and so my father had a hell of a time. And then, uh, uh, just as things were getting better and the little attractively styled upright was bringing the industry back in the late 30s, came the war, and we were forbidden to make uh, pianos for three or four years there. And for my father, a particular woe because all four of us were eventually in the service and that bothered him a great deal and then he got sick and in 1955 he gave up the presidency and he died in 57. So uh, he, had a, he had a particularly rough ride I would say and was a, a man who would like to have collected books. He loved amateur acting. He was a, uh, an intellectual type of fellow and he told me he had planned in the early days that he would retire when he was about 50 and he would do some collecting. Among other things, he was a stamp collector and he almost invented the what's known as the topical collection. He had a collection of music and stamps that was absolutely fabulous and was all sold after he died. So that was Theodore Steinway. Then his brother William had gone to Europe in 1909 to open up Steinway's store in Berlin, which still exists after many wartime experiences. And he liked it and stayed there, so that's how that happened. He was the European general manager uh, until 1939, when the war started, he came back here and uh, was with Steinway until he died. It was nice to get a little picture of the family history, the family tree there from Henry. Um, and what's really cool is a component of this interview that we actually won't be featuring on the podcast because it just doesn't do it justice over audio is at the conclusion of this full interview that's hosted on our website, you can see Henry um, showcase a family tree of sorts of the Steinway family that he had in his office. Um, but obviously without the visual, it doesn't really play well. Yeah, it's a lot of <clears throat> it's a lot of him holding up artifacts and and really cool stuff to look at but yeah without the video it doesn't really make any sense but it is a great memory that i'll always cherish is going to his office at the steinway hall there in new york city uh, where the pianos were being tuned in the basement and where there was a showroom beautiful ballroom like showroom in the middle and then henry's office um, with his cute little typewriter, um, manual typewriter that he still used to put all of his correspondence in. 
And in that office is where he showcased all those awards and plaques and pictures, and it was really neat. I'm glad we did document that. But um, when you were talking about the family tree, I just wanted to make mention for those folks who are kind of wondering his own era. Uh, Henry was born in August of 1915 and passed away in September of 2008. So that was the era that he lived. His, uh, his brother John passed away a few years before him. And together they were really a dynamo in the industry. They went to a lot of uh, conventions and educational programs together, as well as uh, touring around uh, all of their many, many dealers, uh, the, the retailers that sold their pianos throughout the country and the world. And in fact, speaking of his office, when I was there um, for another visit several years after this interview, uh, Henry kindly pointed to four filing cabinet drawers and said, I would like to donate all of these when I pass away to the NAM Resource Center. These are all my correspondence with all of the dealers over the years. And I was, of course, thrilled. And upon receiving them, I just remember sitting on the floor here in the office at NAM and looking at some of these folders one after another of his correspondence with these dealers and these personal relationships that he had created and the fact that he was invited to weddings of the kids of the store owners and you know how that was just a really compelling relationship just one after another uh, people really took a liking as you can hear in his voice very uh, gentleman-like uh, very passionate uh, just down to earth as well um, although he did wear uh, a bow tie just about every time I saw him. So upon uh, one of his visits here at the uh, NAM building, I said, for our archives, we really should have one of your bow ties. And he gave me one. So, uh, <laughs> so in, somewhere in our archives, we have a Henry Steinway bow tie. Um, but Another just uh, quick thing about the family is uh, his wife, Polly, was such a supportive person. And I really do wish that we had convinced her to do an interview. But she was very shy and behind the scenes. Um, but just a, a just a quick word about her. She was definitely there behind the scenes, uh, and, but very important on all of those um, business decisions. I think uh, Henry traveled to Washington often, and uh, she was always with him. Um, she helped with many of the um, the big celebrations that they had over the years, the 100th anniversary, 150th, and so on, and Polly was very much a part of all of that. So just to make sure we acknowledge her and uh, her role in uh, keeping Henry uh, straight and narrow. Um, and so let's continue with this interview that goes back to 2001. What is our next subject? We're going to be talking about the manufacturing plants that were built during his father's time, Henry's father's time, and the development of Steinway Place. And before we kind of rolled into that, I wanted to ask Dan if he had been out to Steinway Place before. Yeah, that is the um, manufacturing component of their operation in New York. It's actually on Long Island in Long Island City, uh, which is sort of the very west part of Long Island, close to Manhattan, and um, very historical place. I mean, when I went there, I actually just took a deep breath and said, okay, so this is where it all happens. It really is neat. And the the workers there are all very dedicated people. Um, I, I was really impressed with the longevity of so many of them. I interviewed, I think, a half a dozen 
that day, uh, just the people who were there over 30 years. It was just amazing. And um, so a very special place and uh, very old school. You know, they have some modern technology in there, of course, but they also have some um, motors run by belt still that take up the whole length of a long building. Um, and really, really neat to see and feel that, that history for sure. The manufacturing plants uh, started off downtown New York in many different buildings as they grew. And then in 1860, they opened a brand new big factory at what is now Park Avenue between uh, 52nd and 53rd Street. And it was at its time a tremendous factory, it was almost a block front there. That was an industrial district. The railroad then ran on top down to the old Grand Central that was further downtown. So it was an industrial district and that was the main factory um, until about 1904. Then in the, in the 70s, they got interested in Astoria. And they, William was the guy who was always on the lookout for growth and opportunity and changes. And they bought 400 acres out in Astoria, which is now Long Island City, near LaGuardia Airport. It's in that little area there. And um, they made a backward uh, integration into making their own plates and sawmill and stuff like that. That's how it started. And our present Steinway factory is located on that plot of land that they originally, um, it's now 12 acres of land in uh, Astoria. Uh, it's still called the Astoria section, but it's not uh, uh, really on the map. It's Long Island City. And one of the streets was named Steinway Street. We have big Steinway Street going through there. So you go down and see what I lovingly refer to as our subsidiaries, the Steinway Bake Shop and the Steinway Fruit Shop and all of those things along Steinway Avenue. They even have a big sale days in the fall, Steinway days and all that sort of thing. And it's a nice little community of Queens still. So that's about the story on the manufacturing. And uh, uh, since then, we have developed that uh, property in Astoria uh, in the, uh, that was after the war when we consolidated, we had two factories and we consolidated on one and the street was renamed Steinway Place, so that's its address. And it's about a 12-acre plot, and I forget how many feet, something like three, 400,000 feet of manufacturing there, which they have recently improved a great deal. They put in new windows and updated it, and uh, uh, new machinery, so it's a going concern. Well, one of the, uh, the main sort of staples of the Steinway Piano Company's marketing really is product placement. I mean, they were doing this long before the movies where we, of course, associate that now. Um, but they were very good about getting pianos in the White House when they had special guests like Vladimir Horowitz or at Carnegie Hall for the opening of a special recital that had debuted there. Um, they were very, very smart and clever about their uh, placement, but also very selective in doing that, too. They didn't do it just any place. And as a result of that, that gave some opportunities for their competitors uh, namely a gentleman who was an apprentice to uh, William Steinway, who went on to start his own company called Baldwin. Uh, so the, the rival actually uh, went on for many, many decades, and Steinway always felt it was uh, kind of humorous that it all started because the, the man got his training originally from Henry's grandfather. 
Um, but interestingly enough, they uh, took the corner uh, market on school programs. Baldwin had the school uh, market here in the United States for many, many years, for which Steinway had always um, lamented about. But they took their time, and I think very seriously so, uh, again with product placement and putting Steinway pianos, particularly concert grands, in universities and larger amphitheaters and theaters for which they would get, you know, sort of, quote, more bang for their buck while at the same time um, showcasing the amazing talents of classical musicians and noted pianists from around the world. So it was a really very clever but um, well-executed marketing plan. So let's hear Henry talking about marketing and William Steinway. Steinway marketing, I think William Steinway was an instinctive, what we now call marketer. He knew, he understood public relations, the value of his own participation in things, getting his name in the newspapers. He was a big Democrat. He was on the Democratic committees. Uh, he functioned in the, uh, the rapid transit committee that planned all the subways in New York and all kinds of public activities like that. And at the same time, he hired uh, as a sales manager at the, actually at the Philadelphia sesquicentennial in 1876. A young Yankee used to come over and play the piano at night and his name was Nahum Stetson. He came from Bridgewater, Mass. And William hired him as sales manager, and he stayed as sales manager for 50 or more years. And he developed Steinway's distribution pretty much as it is today. In other words, they, they, they appointed dealers to whom we sold the piano, and they were obliged to promote it. And such people as uh, Steinert in Boston and Sherman Clay in the West Coast, and uh, many of those go back to Nahum Stetson's time. And he also was a good hirer, and, uh, and many of our executives, some of them lasting into my time, came and developed. And at the same time, William had hired another man named Tretbar, who was his personal assistant. And then as the nephews grew up, he devoted himself to the artist affairs and the running of our, and he's the guy who really created Steinway's artist connection, which is a rather subtle one because we, we don't pay them. But on the other hand, very few people can provide the service we have where there is a Steinway piano, wherever there's an audience at a dealer who has to ship this piano out when somebody wants to play it. And uh, so the Steinway concert service grew out of Tretbar and Stetson, who was the sales manager and uh, really developed that kind of dealer. Of course, it started with big stores like uh, Line and Healy Chicago had, I don't know, 10, 15 stores. Grinnell and Detroit had the whole state. And now it tends to be more restricted uh, areas, although there's still certain big ones like Schmidt Music in Minneapolis, which has a big empire in the Middle West, and Bill McCormick down in Jordan Kitts has been very successful in expanding south. But uh, we have a great many small dealers and towns who we depend on. You can just really tell from that clip that Henry knows that the heart of a good company really is its employees, which I think is often a key to success for a lot of manufacturers and retailers and everything like that. So that's a, a nice little treat to see him acknowledge some of those key positions and some of the, the people that were hired to really elevate the company. Um, 
<clears throat> and I don't think you can talk Steinway pianos without incorporating performance. I mean, it's an iconic piano manufacturer. It's, I think when most people envision large grand pianos, they think Steinways are what they're seeing in their head. Yeah, or just large concert halls in general. Mm-hmm. There's always, like whenever you see a picture of an empty concert hall, like right before a show, there's always a grand piano mm-hmm. sitting on stage. And That's right. nine times out of 10, it's a Steinway. Mm-hmm. So we're going to get to hear Henry talking a little bit about that aspect of the industry, the performance element and the importance of having Steinways played in public and then the development in the enclosure of the Steinway Concert Hall, uh, which is pretty fascinating to hear him talk about that and as well as a couple key players that I don't even want to attempt to say their name because I will butcher it. So this sounds like a perfect segue for Dan. Are we talking about Rudolf Serkin? Uh, Not yet, but it uh, the... um, this one here i'll point it out because i'm not even gonna try oh and yeah say yeah it. well th- actually let's let's let uh henry talk i'm not sure i could pronounce it that well either oh, okay <laughs> so we'll just let henry tell the story please from the early days they realized the importance of having people play the steinway piano in public and uh, they used that and then of course they built this large concert hall on 14th street from which called steinway hall which was the premier location for uh, musical events uh, from the Civil War, 1866, till we closed it about 1890 when they needed the space and Carnegie was being planned, Carnegie Hall and things like that, and another, another hall which is gone on 59th Street. So we got out of the concert business as such. And, uh, but in that time, Steinway had brought over from Europe a series of artists, and the two big successful ones were Anton Rubinstein, the original, not Arthur, but Anton, who played 200 concerts all over the U.S. And then they brought many others over, but uh, the big success was Ignaz Jan Paderewski, the great Paderewski, who came in 1891 and two, I think it was, for the season and just was an absolute sensation. I mean, he, he in many ways created the solo recital, one man, one piano, and his glowing reddish Polish hair and his, uh, he was an exciting thing. And of course he came back and back and back till he was a very old man and actually died in a hotel next to Steinway Hall. He'd come in 1940 with some reluctance to the United States when the war started and uh, died here and was a remarkable fellow. There are so many artists who have um, become synonymous with Steinway, yeah. but he probably is, is on the top of the list, wouldn't you think? Yes, he is, as, as I say, sort of like what Babe Ruth is to baseball, a name everybody knows. Paderewski is a name that most people recognize, of course. Uh, he, his, his last recital was in the late 30s, and there have since then have been these, uh, in our field, big, big names, Horowitz, uh, who burst on the scene in 1927, 28, and uh, was a, a new, different style of exciting piano playing. And then later on in the 30s came uh, Rudolf Serkin and uh, uh, Arthur Rubinstein, who was able to communicate a tremendous excitement about performances who enjoyed performing and enjoyed being entertained and did a lot of good of that kind of promotion. He was always happy to be at a party afterwards and meet people and that was so good for the music business and for dealers and so on. And 
there was a sort of a musical society which has now more or less disappeared in the world, but uh, uh, he, he, was, he was just great. And then, of course, there are a lot of awful good ones today, but I always remember the old ones. <laughs> okay, now we get to talk about Rudolf Serkin, right? Yeah, but I could have said that one. <laughs> I know. I, just in case you guys are wondering out there, I do know how to read. So, <laughs> not very well, but I can do it. Well, what's really funny, if you listen carefully to the line of questioning here from me uh, in this interview in 2001, you can hear that I'm a little on the giddy side when I'm thinking, wow, Henry knew Rudolf Serkin. Uh, When I was a kid, the first classical record that I heard uh, was a neighbor's, and it was Serkin playing Beethoven, and I was just mesmerized. I just could not get over how wonderful it was. Um, so I studied a little bit about him, just read about him a little bit, and to sit toe-to-toe with Henry, who knew the man, was really kind of fun. Uh, Rudolf Serkin was uh, born in the Czech Republic in 1903 and really became a child prodigy, um, developed his skills on uh, the works of Beethoven and became very well known for that. In fact, when he came to the United States in 1937, he debuted at Carnegie Hall playing Beethoven. It was often referred to as a monumental milestone for classical music. Um, And and, um, just to kind of give you an idea of the impact that this guy had on classical music, it was uh, as early as 1963, he was given uh, the highest uh, medal honor from the uh, United States president to a um, non-citizen, and that was the Medal of Freedom in 1963. Uh, So the guy had a lot of impact, and it was really fun to hear Henry's views on the man, so uh, let's get right to it. Here's Henry Steinway talking about Rudolf Serkin. Rudolf Serkin was a remarkable fellow in that he truly was interested in teaching, and um, he soon uh, discovered he was married, had kids, and he went up to Guilford, Vermont, which is a, uh, was then nowhere, and started this extraordinary Marlboro School in the summertime when he said pianists should learn to play chamber music. And so this was a wonderful place because many, many of today's artists went there and never mind the solo stuff, they were assigned different things. They had concerts every weekend and Serkin would go around. You never knew what the program was because he'd decide who was ready. And they'd say, okay, you're gonna play Sunday and you're gonna play Trout Quintet or whatever it was. And so he had this side that was truly remarkable. And of course his son, one son, Peter, is a a distinguished artist today and the others are involved in, uh, in music in one way or another. So he was a remarkable guy. Then he also became head of the Curtis Institute, one of the big teaching uh, foundations, and he did a great job down there too. But he really liked it up in the the country. He and Mrs. Serkin liked to live there and have that old kind of German, you know, cooking and the kids around, and uh, he'd practice, and we had to send pianos up. He had a barn that uh, even made Columbia go up there and do the recordings, I think they would. uh, record up there and so forth. I remember one occasion when uh, uh, some anniversary or something, some must have been the Philharmonic, and they gave him as a present a tractor, which is what he'd always wanted for the place up there. So on stage came this big John Deere tractor or something like that. I have some vague memory of this. I don't, can't give the details. 
No, he was, he, was a, he was a great fellow, much missed for this teaching thing, but fortunately his Marlboro thing is still going on. I've been a big fan of his, that's why I was curious. Yeah. In fact, um, on a family trip to Vermont, I uh, made the family go up to see Did you? the college. Oh, yeah, yes. A beautiful place. Oh, it's a beautiful spot, lovely. And uh, uh, he, he, uh, he made it work. I mean, the, the, the people would come there from all over and for the, about six weeks in the summer when these concerts are given. And it still goes on. I don't go there anymore. I, I live in Vermont, but I, it's too lazy to go two hours drive to go to the concerts. <laughs> but he was a remarkable fellow. And of course, he, he liked, he played certain music like Max Rega that uh, nobody played. And uh, entirely different type from Rubenstein, who had this wonderful uh, flash and panache and all that sort of thing. And I remember being on a radio once with Rubenstein and uh, the young interviewer in the radio said, Mr. Rubenstein, you don't play any contemporary music. And Rubenstein says, I play my contemporaries. <laughs> and I thought that was a perfect answer. <laughs> and he did, he played all the Spanish guys and all that stuff. So as you can imagine, we could sit all day and just talk to Henry about these wonderful um, musicians that he knew very well, uh, one after another. Um, but I, unfortunately, I only got to a few others, one of which is uh, Vladimir Horowitz, who we're going to be hearing Henry talking about next. He, uh, Mr. Horowitz was also born the same year that um, uh, Rudolf Serkin was, 1903. Uh, only not in the Czech Republic, but in Russia. And as many may know, uh, Horowitz really defined classical music for his era. And playing the Steinway was his, um, his insistence wherever he went. And so as a result, he developed a great relationship with Mr. Steinway. And um, it's also wonderful to hear him talk about sort of the personal side of the genius that was Vladimir Horowitz. So let's get right into that, if you don't mind. Well, uh, Horowitz lived in a house up in the 90s in Manhattan here. And if you know New York houses, they're 20 feet wide. They go up five floors. And they all used to have a stairway going up to the first floor and the servants went down the basement. And uh, Horowitz had his own concert grant in there, and the only way you could really get it in was through the window. And so you had to take the frame of the window out and get it in. And when he started playing again and recording, he, he often wanted that piano. And so several times we had to take it out, bring it to the recording studio, and then bring it back. Then he'd experiment with other pianos and uh, would finally play. Steinway has now uh, one of his pianos which they send around to dealers and it's used as display. People love to come and look at it and play on it and so forth. Uh, but that, there's a thing about concert artists. Uh, when they're young, they'll play anything. When they get older, they want the security of some piano that they know. Rubenstein used to say, I'll play any piano. I can conquer anyone. But when he got older, he'd say, well, would you send this one to Boston for me and would you send that one there? And way back in the days of Rachmaninoff, um, he would come at the beginning of the year uh, right here in Steinway Hall where we're sitting and they would line up eight or ten concert grands and he would pick three. One for orchestra, one for solo, and one backup. 
and then those three would be leapfrogged around depending on what his tour was that uh, that particular year. And in those years, we had still had railroads and American Express worked and we could ship these things all over the place. Now everything has to be done by truck, which is a lot more cumbersome and uh, quite a lot more expensive. But that's the way he had no particular one. He would, he would start each season. He'd, sometimes he'd pick the same one he had last season. Sometimes he wouldn't. And he was a, he was a wonderful pianist. So that was Henry talking about um, the vast amount of uh, musicians that uh, have played Steinways over the years. And <clears throat> one reason why these artists play Steinways is because of the consistency of the instrument. Um, Steinway prides themselves on their craftsmanship, and we're going to hear Henry talk about that now. No matter how consistent we try and make them, they are put together by hand. And so there are inevitable differences in the touch and tone. And then each person, like Horowitz and Rubinstein, couldn't play the same piano. Their, their, their technique, their, uh, it's a touch-tone thing. Uh, hard to separate psychologically what it is. But uh, Horowitz had great strength and could uh, play the note from just above the escapement. And Rubinstein liked one with more resistance. And so our people would make these fine regulations too that uh, would fit uh, each one and still do. That's what uh, this uh, ambient noise you're hearing out here is the man tuning some of these pianos that will be selected. Uh, by somebody. So a little earlier we were talking about product placement and how uh, Henry and his brother John started a relationship with the White House. Um, and so this next segment of Henry's interview, um, he'll be talking a little bit about that history and that collaboration which uh, still continues to this day. Grover Cleveland came from Buffalo, New York and uh, William Steinway, my grandfather's first wife, came from Buffalo, New York and he had known him as a young lawyer in Buffalo. And then when he became president, he, was, he William Steinway, was a big Democrat, and of course uh, Cleveland was a Democrat, and he remembered him, and there was certain interchange. And then, as you know, Cleveland was married in the White House, and uh, uh, William gave him a piano for his wife. And I think that gave Mr. Nahum Stetson, the sales manager, the idea that uh, we want the White House to have some form of official Steinway uh, there. And uh, what worked out was that finally by the time, it took a little time, and by the Theodore Roosevelt administration, we had given to the White House an official piano for the East Room. And it, it's a beautiful sort of Victorian decorated piano with a, on the inside cover is a painting by Thomas Dewing, who was a very famous, uh, depict especially of women, and these are nine graces dancing across there. It belongs to the Smithsonian, they have restored it, and they use it from time to time as displays, and last time I saw it was in the um, um, Smithsonian Museum of Art, one of those art museums, because they had a doing exhibition, and they had the piano there along with doing paintings. And then uh, we like to, you know, piano 40 years old, you know, should have a new piano. So in Franklin Roosevelt time, my father had created a new White House Steinway, which is still there. And that's in a sort of, I guess, we called it modern, I guess it's called Art Deco style. A big uh, a mahogany 
lightish color with tremendous eagles and around the side it depicts certain music symbols. And for the last 20 years, we've been trying to give the White House a new one. And they say, no, this is a, uh, an artifact like all the other furniture. You know, there's now a, some kind of a, a foundation really controls the public rooms in the White House. And uh, uh, you can't fool with anything without them. And so the first time we did 15 years ago, it says, no, no, take it back and fix it up. So we had to take it back. and redo the action and all that sort of thing and uh, it's still there we uh, they're trying again now to see if we can give them a new one but it doesn't seem to work it's all a marketing thing you know to see we, we a 40 year old piano is perfectly good but i mean we like the idea that you have to replace things every once in a while i think that's a perfect place to end part one Indeed. of the henry steinway podcast what do you guys think yep i think so perfect Hey, so thanks for joining us on this episode. We're going to have the conclusion of our interview with Henry Steinway in two weeks, so make sure you check back in with us. But in the meantime, if you've got something nice to say, please leave us a review and rate us on iTunes. We could great, we would greatly appreciate it. And as always, if you have suggestions or comments uh, for future episodes or some uh, awesome feedback, uh, hit us up at library at nam.org. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.